He's definitely the only announcement bringer who makes fun of me. So I've missed that, I guess. Just kidding. Thanks, Erdy. It's good to have you guys back. Um, You can open to Daniel chapter 8. If you're visiting and you have not been part of this series, then we're jumping right into a kind of apocalyptic literature, and uh, it gets real very fast. But I'm going to try and help us to understand the main point here because we're not much to Merv's chagrin, we're not out to find out exactly who the Antichrist is going to be. Sorry, Merv. Um, oh, I wanted to say one other thing. No, I'll save that for next week. You'll be in suspense now. Uh, chapter 8. So, before we read it, I just want to give you a little bit of a catch-up of last week because these two chapters partner together uh, very much so, and we need to understand 7 if we want to look at 8. But, before I even say that, is... Weeks and weeks ago, when we started going through Daniel, chapter 1, does anybody remember what the two languages of Daniel are written in? I did not do my job very good. Thank you. Somebody said it. Okay, good. So Hebrew is what the entire Old Testament is written in, except for chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 of Daniel. All of a sudden, it shifts, and it's written in Aramaic. And then now in chapter 8, it goes back into Hebrew. And, and that is a hugely significant thing, something that I'm probably sure that I learned in Bible college but forgot. And then when I started studying this again and looking at the design patterns and the symmetry and all these things, realized just how important this is. So it, this, this language does two things for us. Is One, it shows us that chapters 2 to 7 are one coherent movement that we need to pay special attention to, but it also shows us that chapter 2 and 7 become pivotal in understanding the rest of the book as a whole. And so we already saw that a little bit last week where chapter 7 very much mirrored chapter 2, except was a little bit a bigger, so a more macro view than chapter 2, though chapter 2 already is a pretty big view. And so there's not some kind of, you know, hugely significant, well, if you understand the language shift, you'll understand the rest of the Bible. That's, it's not some kind of aha moment like that. It's simply the writer trying to show us and trying to give us some little patterns and some little clues so that we see the importance of this. So what are chapters 2 and 7? Well, 2 was a dream, about, or a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had right? And in the dream, there was this statue that was built, and uh, as we interpreted the dream and as we learned, it was these empires that are coming, right? So first is the Babylonian Empire, and then the Medo-Persia Empire, and then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, ultimately all being destroyed by a rock cut without human hands, which represented the first coming of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at some of those things, and then last week in chapter 7, we saw much of the same thing, except different images were being given, different imagery we see and we read. And what's really interesting is in chapter 2, God gives Daniel the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. Not only does he give him the interpretation, he actually gives him the dream, because Nebuchadnezzar won't say what the dream was to interpret. And so God does this miraculous thing through Daniel, and then chapter 7, which parallels so closely, is something that Daniel doesn't know how to interpret. And again, I find that so interesting. Now, again, I'm not pointing fingers at Daniel. Again, Daniel's one of these characters in the Bible that uh, is steadfast in his faith and we can learn much from. But the point being is this, is Daniel is not God. He doesn't know everything. 
And even the things that we read later on, and we read chapter 7 and go, Daniel, you should have you known what this was. It was in chapter 2 already. It's real easy to point the finger at other people and understand their lives more clearly than our own. And so we just need to remind ourselves that that maybe isn't fair. And so as we go through chapter 7, we see not only the same things as in chapter 2, but a little bit more detail and a little bit bigger of a macro view, all the way talking about, is this a pattern of things, events, types of people, types of kingdoms that are going to happen all the way in Daniel's time, from those initial four governments or kingdoms, all the way through, through history, all the way to our own time and the oppressive regimes that we see all around the world right now. And the challenge that I gave was not to try and interpret chapter 7 solely based on our context and say, man, this is the end time stuff. This is all only to do with end times with the Antichrist and try to figure out when the end time is, the date, and who the Antichrist is going to be. No, sorry, Murph. If we're going to do that, we're missing out what the text says. We're, we're interpreting it based on our context before we interpret it based on the culture and the context in which it was written. And so, is chapter 7 talking about the end times? Yeah, I think it is. But not primarily. In fact, I think what it's doing is it's trying to tell us over and over the same thing chapter 8 is going to as well. No matter how difficult culture gets, no matter how anti-God any government gets, is that government is fixed in a specific point, in a specific time, and God will win. And God will overthrow those governments. And we see some of those things happen, and we've seen some of those things happen within even the last 120 years. Some very significant things happen like that. And right now, in this moment that we find ourselves in, it's so easy to see another war, to see another conflict, or something like that, and go, oh, this has got to be the end. Well, we're 2,000 years plus later since Jesus came. And how many oppressive kingdoms have come? And how many times have nations been per- or Christians been persecuted against by governments? is rather than go, man, this is the end, to think of it as if this is the end, God wins. And that's what we need to remind ourselves of. No matter the difficulty that you are facing, the opposition, the persecution, the heartache, the pain, whatever it might be, is the book of Daniel, especially these last few chapters of visions and prophecy and and apocalyptic visions are telling us your hope is rested in God, not in man. Your hope is not in the government. Your hope is not in that some world leader is going to come and, and make everything good for our nation again. Though certainly there are times of what we would call maybe political revival or spiritual revival or, or whatever it might be where things get, oh, we think they're really good again, but then only to fall again. And what it's showing us is the depravity of man. What it's showing us is the exact story of the Old Testament repeated out again because it's simply this. People without Christ at the center of their hearts lose sight of what is most important and focus on their own self, their own desires. And that brings us to a place where we see the things that are happening in the world all around us. And we, as Christians, are meant to be salt and light to the world, to bring good news to it, and pray and hope that revival comes, but also not forget that persecution and hardship and pain are coming too. And if we are prepared for that, if we are ready for that, we're going to respond that much more biblically to it than we are if we think, man, it's just all going to be good now. Now that I'm a Christian, everything will go really well in my life. And again, I, I joked about that the other week, and I said, uh, how many of you have had that happen? 
right? All of us have struggles and pain and hurts and grief and despair. All these things are part of the human experience, but we as Christians have hope in Christ. So that's the chapter seven view. Now, if if you kind of think of, I was going to try and put a graph up, but I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do this. But if you think of chapter seven as kind of a timeline from Daniel all the way to the end, whenever that is, we don't know. Chapter eight is kind of like a, so that's the macro view. Chapter eight is kind of like right there. It's a very specific moment in time. And yes, it's going to point to some of the end stuff as well, but it's far more specific about a very specific kingdom that did come and that history has taught us and we know who it is and interpreters and commentators are almost in universal agreement about many, many details in chapter 8. And so we want to interpret it first in light of that context and then how does that then apply to us. So let's read chapter 8 together. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so now this is two years later than chapter 7, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another one said to the one who who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offerings? The transgression that makes desolate. And the giving over of the sanctuary and hosts to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. 
And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time at the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horns between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Again, that last verse, you can be, it can be easy to be critical of Daniel going, you, you were just interpreted the dream by the angels. What's not to understand? And, and I don't think that it's this issue of he intellectually didn't understand what the angels told him. I think it's simply this, is the news is not good. And he's told the saints, those who follow God, the Jewish people who are currently in exile, though have been promised to return from exile, are going to undergo an intense and great persecution and many will be killed and destroyed. And Daniel's wondering, how, how, does, how can that happen? God, why would you let this happen? This doesn't make any sense. How often have we prayed those exact same words in our own context? A situation, a circumstance happens to us and we go, God, this, this can't be what you want. And yet with hindsight, with time, we sometimes are able to look back and to see that that thing that we thought was awful was actually God at work trying to direct us towards something better. And again, that word better doesn't mean better in the context of more money or more popularity or more fame. It means what is best for me and my spiritual growth towards Jesus Christ. So if we look at chapter 8, this is a super interesting vision for a couple of reasons. Remember, we're not in the chronological aspect of Daniel. It's a little bit confusing. So chapter 5 already is King Belshazzar. And then chapter 6, we're now into the Medo-Persia Empire. And Daniel is at work there as well. And then we kind of go backwards a little bit for chapter 7 and 8. And so when we're here in chapter 8, what we're reminded of is you may be thinking as the reader, well, we already know that the Medes and the Persians come and they conquer Babylon in chapter 5. But this is years before that, and it's so specific that the angel literally says the Medo-Persian governments are going to form together, and one will be stronger than the other, and one represents a larger horn than the other because of its strength, and they're going to conquer Babylon. Could you get a more specific prophecy than that? It's, It's so intensely specific. And in fact, it's so specific that there were many commentators that for many years refused to believe that this section was actually written by Daniel and believed that this was written much later in history and then accredited to Daniel. 
Now, first of all, there's no external support to prove that by any means. And I think it's trying to put God in a box when God's already proven throughout the first five chapters that no box can contain him. If Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he won't even tell the people the dream, but he commands that they, you tell me the dream and interpret it for me. If God can do that in Daniel... If God can rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace, if God can rescue Daniel out of the mouths of the lions and the lion's den, if God can do all of that, why can't he give a very specific prophecy? Where's the logic in that? And so while it might be difficult to go, man, this is very specific, is there anything God can't do? Because Scripture seems to prove otherwise, doesn't he? All throughout the Old Testament, it's people refusing to submit and believe God, and God does miraculous things to show them how powerful he is, and they go, my goodness, no no one could ever do that. You are the one true God. We're going to follow you, and then they forget. And God continually shows his power and his strength, so why would the specifics of this surprise us that much? So as we see, the angel interprets this, and so we're not going to quite go, you know, in a linear flow through chapter 8 here, but the Medo-Persian Empire overthrows Babylon and they become great very quickly. And it's interesting because they give the directions that they go from, and what's the only direction that they don't give? Testing you now. Were we listening or were we reading? Ah, who said it? I heard it. Phil, what did you say? That's correct. West, yes. And who comes from the West in the vision? The Greeks. Oh, people are listening. I like it. The Greeks come, and, and of course, you know, the angels interpret this for them, but this is all exactly the same as chapter 2, and according to history, it went Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greeks. This is just what happened. And, and it says, so the, the Medo-Persian they conquered every known people group within that, language, or within that region except Greece. They couldn't do it. They tried. There's several historical times where the Medo-Persians tried to conquer Greece, and they wouldn't. And then who came up from Greece according to history? Alexander the Great came up and conquered everything within three years. It's actually quite amazing what he accomplished. We're not trying to say it's good by any means, but it's amazing what happened. And and this says very clearly, he destroys those horns, but then it gets even more specific because if you know the history of Alexander the Great, when he died, he gave the kingdom to his two sons who were immediately murdered, and then four generals equal in each direction were given over to his kingdom. Does that not sound exactly like what it says here? It's it's, it's just identical. And so when we see these things, and then when we see history, that's when it's a lot easier to interpret, isn't it? Sometimes it's just obvious we look and go, oh, well, that's clear. That happened. Sometimes the imagery gets a little more confusing and a little bit trickier to understand. But here's something that I want to focus on just for a moment, because I didn't think of this until I came across a commentator who brought this out. I was so focused on kind of understanding the vision that I lost sight of the macro view here, and and, uh, Stephen Miller writes this. He says, Alexander the Great spread the Greek language and culture all over the world 
an act that prepared the world for the gospel by giving it a common speech, Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. So even in the midst of chaos and war and struggle, God is at work in his redemptive purposes to use even what we would say is just an awful thing. God goes, I'm, I'm going to take this and I'm going to use it. I'm going to redeem it. Right? That's something that I should have noticed and we all should spend a great deal of time on because in our own hearts and our own lives, the same is true. And Paul digs into this heart in the book of Romans where he says over and over and over what, is, what you define as all this bad and difficult and painful, God means for good and he's using for his redemptive purposes. So I know for some of you right now, that is a very difficult verse to hear because you're going through some very difficult things, some very painful things, things that you don't know how to deal with, things that you feel like you don't have the wisdom for, things that seem so far out of your control. And when we read something like that, we're reminded that God is at work because God is a God who redeems. God loves you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. There's no greater news when we're in pain and hurt. We might say we would just rather have the answer or how we should step forward. But God doesn't give us that. Usually he just says, I'm with you in the midst of it. Lean on me. I'll walk you through this. After this, we see in in verse 9, a specific prophecy about a very specific individual that, again, commentators by and large agree that this little horn represents the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Empire, Antichus IV Epiphanes. While his reign was short-lived, it was devastating for the Jewish people. Miller again points this out. He says, this king, the little horn, was so arrogant and he was so willing to assert himself against the saints of God and even against God himself, that he gave himself the name Theos Antichus, the illustrious God. His reign, while short, was devastating for the Jewish people. And he was viewed by some as this incredible leader who was brutal and could conquer and all these different things. But most people simply referred to him as this way, Antichus the madman. Because they knew and saw that he was just crazy that he was hell-bent on destruction and on the elevation of himself to the place where he, well, we'll talk about this in a minute, where he defies God. And we see the same thing happened in chapter 5 with Belshazzar. He walked in and he took all the sacred artifacts that were taken out of the Jewish temple and he used them to worship his own gods. And Daniel says that that is the reason that his kingdom ended and his nation was conquered. History repeats itself over and over and over again. And sometimes you just wonder how people do not learn from this. History shows us that for about seven years, Antichus ruled and he executed thousands of Jews who refused to bend to his crazy laws and demands against Yahweh, the one true God. Some historians focus on a very specific moment where he plundered the Jewish temple. And some historians estimate that an upwards of 80,000 men, women, children, and infants were slaughtered during this one siege. Do you maybe understand why Daniel was so overcome and not 
couldn't grasp what was happening here when the angels say there's going to be an incredible, intense persecution that breaks out against your people. And we're going to see in the coming chapters that the the seven years is coming to an end that Jeremiah prophesied and the people are going to come back and the temple is going to be rebuilt. And so there's great cause for hope and joy in some of these other ones, other visions, but God's telling Daniel here, unfortunately, though, the people are going to turn. They're not going to follow me. They're going to follow after their own hearts again. And essentially what God does is he redeems, he restores, he brings back peace only to watch people turn their backs on God and then God eventually, for lack of a better term, lets people fall into the consequences of their own actions. Then he comes back again and he redeems and he restores. And and this just happens right from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible and even into our own lives that we see. You ever noticed, uh, maybe if you're a parent, you probably noticed this, where your kids make a, or are making a decision, and you can see it's a real bad decision, and you know it doesn't lead a good place, and what do you say? You can either forbid them from doing it, but what does that make them do? They do it anyway, right? So you try to give wisdom, and you try to show, here's what's going to happen. It's not going to be good for you. Please don't, you know, do that. Maybe make this other better decision, and, and they go, and they make that bad decision, and then you say what? No, you don't say, I told you so. That doesn't help. But that's what we want to do, isn't it? Right? I saw. I knew I could tell you that was what's going to happen, and yet you did it anyway. So often, we then turn when we've made those decisions, and we go, God, how could you let this happen? And God's going, I, I tried to show you to go a different direction, to make a different decision. Again, that doesn't mean that God's love is any less for us. The same as a parent doesn't then go, you made a mistake, child. Well, I guess I no longer love you. There's consequences for that mistake, but then there's grace and forgiveness and restoration. The love doesn't end, and the same is true of God. Even in the midst of this crazy time that he's being prophesied to of Daniel here, God is at work. Antiochus goes so far, like I said, he, he opposes God directly that not only does he do kind of what Belshazzar did, but actually he erected a uh, statue to Zeus and offered a swine sacrifice to it in the Jewish temple, which is basically his way of saying, I'm going to do absolutely everything that God said not to do, and what is he going to do about it? It's just defying God. Well, History teaches us what happened to him. His rule was not long because he was so brutal, not even his own people liked him, and eventually he was killed. Again, let's put ourselves in in Daniel's shoes again here. This message that he's been given is one of exceeding, it's, it's depressing to the extreme. To know that your people are going to come out of slate or out of exile are going to be restored and, and yet they're just going to go right back into it again. Now we're going to see Daniel's response to all of this in the later chapters. But at this point he's overwhelmed with this and I think so too would we be. But this message that the angel gives is no different than a lot of what the New Testament tells us either. And in fact, we've studied some of this over the last couple of years. In the book of 1 Peter, 
Peter reminds Christians to be perseverant and faithful to God under the reigns of Nero and Domitian. And according to history, Nero was so brutal that he would pour wax over Christians, light them on fire so that he would illuminate his gardens. And Peter says, persevere in the midst of that. Don't give in and don't refuse to follow after God because in God is the only hope that you have because, this is Greg's paraphrase here, because people are crazy and they're not going to follow me. But that doesn't mean it's right or good. Stay steadfast, stay strong. Even if it costs your life. Jesus says the same thing over and over and I quote this verse often, in this world you will have what? But take heart. I've overcome the world, he says. He doesn't say your troubles won't be here, but he says, I have conquered those troubles. So that promise, right? When you are given, you, you find the worst news possible, someone that you love has died, or you now get a phone call from a doctor and you have cancer, whatever it might be, some extreme thing, is we can remember that God is in control in this moment still. And that even if it costs me my life, that's okay because then one day I'll be with Christ in eternity and none of it will matter. Paul says he's not even going to compare the present sufferings with the glories that are coming. If only we could have that view too. In Matthew 24 and in Revelation, we read about how awful uh, persecution is going to come. And actually, we, we see this in our own world in various parts of the world. Where if you're a Christian, you might be killed. If you're carrying a Bible, you're going to prison. There's all kinds of places in the world where persecution is great. And the only way we can process any of this is because we know that God said these things are going to continue to happen all the way to the very end. And, and yes, we can look at kind of last week and, and a couple of chapters moving forward and specifically lots of revelation and say that there's this one moment and there's this one ruler and one nation that's going to come. And all of that's probably exactly true and correct, but I don't think the point is that we find out what that is. I think the point that we find out is that God will conquer. That Christ is coming again, and when Jesus comes again, he wins. He already came once. He conquered sin he conquered death. When he comes at his second coming, he's going to finish that. And we'll go be with him for eternity. So some of the specifics in the text where people kind of get hung up or where it talks about 2,300 days and people want to try and uh, figure out exactly what this means. The numbers, none of them really work exactly perfectly. And I think it's only because we're trying to make the Bible say something more specifically than it's intending to say. But at the end of it is this, if you like history. On December 14th, 165, Judas Maccabeus cleansed and rededicated the temple. And today the Jews celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah to commemorate that event all the time. That's what we see. There will be the season where the temple is destroyed, where sacrifice no longer is able to be happened. I shouldn't say destroyed, desecrated, and sacrifice will no longer be able to happen, but one day somebody will come and will rededicate the temple and those offerings will be brought again. The reason I said desecrate and not destroy, though I accidentally said destroy, so pardon me for that, is because there's other prophecies to talk about who and when the temple will be destroyed by. And so we see that throughout Scripture that God is very consistent. When he tells us something's going to happen, it happens that way. And so here the temple doesn't get destroyed, but does get desecrated and taken away. 
Daniel doesn't understand this. He asks for the explanation. We see the interpretation given. Daniel, what's going to come is going to be very painful. It's essentially what the angel said. It's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. And while that is not good news by any means, it comes on the tales of chapter 7 where God promised, but don't worry, I will win. I remember that chapter 2, and again chapter 8 here, it says that these people will be destroyed, but not by human hands. God is in control. And so for you today, if you feel like it doesn't look like God's in control, the circumstances of my life make it seem like God is completely out of control, perhaps the issue is with our perspective on what we think God wants to do in our lives and it's through us. Again, that's very easy for me to say up here when, you know, if my life is going good and to see somebody who's going through great heartache to tell them, don't worry, God's in control. I'm not, I'm not trying to trivialize what you're going through by any stretch. And I don't understand, nor can I grasp the difficulty that you're going through. But I know that God does. And I know that he's walking through it with you. And I know that he is being faithful because scripture says it and it shows it. And we, we've seen it over and over and over again. And even in our own lives, when we look back, we see it. The problem is when we're drowning in the moment, it's very hard to see clearly. I remember watching, uh, Shayla likes watching these um, kind of nature attacked type shows or something like that. And, and we were watching one um, where somebody uh, jumped out of a helicopter as a, as a swimmer to go and save somebody. And, uh, and they were talking about one thing you have to do sometimes because people are in their most panicked moments. So you as a lifeguard, what do you have to do? <laughs> you knock him out so he can't fight you. <laughs> And then you rescue them. Now again, that analogy falls apart real quick. But the point being is when we feel like we're being punched out, maybe that's the mercy and the grace of God in that moment. Maybe God has purpose yet that we can't see and that we're fighting and we're saying, no, I'd rather drown than be saved. Daniel's response to this as he goes and he lays sick for several days because he's overcome with this is the same as true of us sometimes. God, I don't know what you're doing and I don't understand it. Why are you letting these things happen? I've called that prayer out many times in my life and I've probably never gotten a sufficient answer that I was happy with. And yet I still don't really learn to just go, I'm just going to trust. These are what these texts read to us. This is what it's supposed to remind us of. This is where we're supposed to see. God has a plan of salvation and we can look back on these things and we can say, these things that God promised, they happened exactly as he promised. And God is no less God today than he was then, and so I can trust him for my difficulty, for my chaos, for the uncertainty, for the pain, for the grief, whatever it might be that you're facing, you can trust God with it. And we go back to Scripture and we remind ourselves of two things. First, that because Jesus came and he died on the cross for us, that our sins are forgiven. Because he rose again, we will rise again too. And I know that's very hypothetical and it's hard to be like, 
where Paul says, I don't even compare my present sufferings worthy of comparing with, with Christ or with the glory that's to come. It's very difficult for us to say, but it's true, I promise you. That one day the hurts and the pains that you have will be gone and you won't look back on them and go, I don't think this is worth it. You'll be so overwhelmed at being in the presence of Christ that nothing else will ever matter. So when we read these visions, let's not just immediately look to the end and try and understand details that God hasn't given us. In fact, Jesus said very plainly, nobody knows the day or the hour. In fact, while he was on the earth, he said, not even I know, only the Father in heaven knows. What do we need to know? That God loves us. That God is at work. That God is revealing things to us because he cares about our spiritual growth. And if we would only persevere and fight through those moments those seasons, those difficulties, that even if it takes our life, that in, as Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we live like we actually believe that. I know that's very easy to say, but hard to walk through. Let's pray. God, in these verses, there's so much specific detail given that, that we who have history on our side can look back on and see, wow, you, you were very clear about some of this. And yet then in our own lives, right here and now, it can seem like we lose all that clarity. We can lose sight of the fact that you love us and we can forget those things. And so God, I pray that here in this moment, that as we read texts like this, that we would remind ourselves that you are with us even when it feels like you're not. So God, this morning I pray for each one who is going through hurt and pain and crisis and confusion and uncertainty and grief, whatever else it is that they're facing, God, would you make your presence known to them? Would you show them that you are walking through this journey with them, that you love them, and that you're actually causing us to grow deeper and our trust, and our need for you. God, help us as the people of the church to reach out and to care for one another. To love one another and to remind each other of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus wins. So God, as we shift into a time of communion here, we're going we're gonna to spend these moments reminding ourselves of that truth. That Jesus Christ came to the earth to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That not only did he forgive sin, but he conquered death and he rose again, promising to us that we will rise as well. So may we have our focus there. God, thank you for all of this. Amen. If you just want to flip ahead to 1 Corinthians, I'm just going to read this text. I'm just going to ask Lee to come up. and Lee, if you just want to bring somebody with you as well to pass out the communion. And then we'll uh, 
spend some time considering that and then eating and drinking together. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting at verse 23, it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think one of the reasons that Jesus did it this way for us is he was reminding his disciples specifically, but us as well as we look back, that we need a pattern. We need an anchor. We need to remind ourselves regularly of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Because the hurts and the pains and the struggles of this world can overwhelm us very easily if our focus is not on the cross. So Jesus says, whenever you come together, and we in this church, we do this on the first Sunday of every month, but you could do this every day in your home, and we could probably still do it more often than that, is we need to be reminded. Christ wins. There is hope there. So let me pray. Then the guys will pass out the bread, and then we'll eat the bread together, and then we'll do the same with the cup. So let's bow and pray. God, thank you that Jesus willingly came to this earth. That he gave up heaven for that time. That he came to serve us and to show us the depth of his love by ultimately sacrificing his life for ours. It is only in the body of Jesus that was broken for us that there's hope. So God, as we pass out the bread here, as we hold in our hands and as we remain quiet for just a moment, may we remind ourselves of the importance of rhythm in our lives and having an anchor that we can daily go back and remind ourselves that you are in control. Christ wins. Amen.
So this cracker you hold in your hand represents the body of Christ broken for you. Let's eat in remembrance of him. And God, as we pass the cup, we are reminded that throughout the whole of the Old Testament, every time any sin was made, blood was shed. But when your blood was shed on the cross, when Jesus sacrificed himself for us, that that never needs to happen again. That Jesus' blood was sufficient to forgive all sin once and for all. And as it said in the text that we read, that we do this every, in our case, every month, we do this together in remembrance of you until you would come again. So we thank you for your blood, which was shed for us, but we celebrate and we praise you because we know that you are coming again and that we will go and we will be with you for all eternity. There's no greater promise that we can cling to, nothing that the world can offer us that can give us that kind of hope. And so center us there, God. We thank you for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we look forward to his second coming. Amen. This represents Christ's blood spilled for us. The only thing that could accomplish redemption. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we break from this gathering, as we head off to the various things that we have planned and that you have put in front of us today, would you help us to remain focused on what is truly important and what truly matters? 
Help us to not lose sight. But help us to remain fixed on the cross. We love you. Go with us today. Give us everything that we need, not necessarily what we want. That we might grow into becoming more and more like Christ every day. Amen. Thank you for joining.